0: Hello, and welcome to our future in space. What if robots could be soft like an octopus? We'll be talking with Professor Robert McCurdy of the University of Colorado Boulder today to find out the answer to that and many more questions around the topic of soft robotics. I'm Jeff Greenblatt, the Vice President for Science and Research
1: at Orbital Assembly. And I'm Eric Ward, the VP of Engineering Design at Orbital Assembly. Thanks for joining us. We guys will like this episode. Nature in Space,
0: brought to you by Orbital Assembly, with your hosts,
1: Dr. Jeff Greenblatt and Eric Ward. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing really well. I'm looking forward to this talk. Uh, Today we're joined by our guest, Robert McCurdy. Dr. McCurdy is an assistant professor in mechanical engineering at the University of Colorado, Boulder, where he leads the Matter Assembly Computation Lab, or the MAC Lab. He's developing new algorithms, materials, and fabrication tools to automatically design and manufacture electromechanical systems with a focus on robotics. Rob did his PhD work with Hod Lipson at Cornell University and his postdoctoral work at MIT with Daniela Rus. He holds a BA in physics from Ithaca College, a BS in electrical engineering from Cornell University, and an MS and PhD in mechanical engineering from Cornell University. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, so why don't you start by telling us what your research focuses on? Sure,
2: yeah, so in the Mac Lab, we focus on automating the design and fabrication of robots. So we're trying to make it easier and faster for people who know what they want to accomplish with a robot, but maybe don't know how to accomplish what they want to accomplish with a robot. And so our answer to that is to create design automation tools that will allow users to specify high-level goals For example, make a robot that can move as fast as possible through some space uh, and then um, leverage computational design tools with optimization-driven design to try to come up with, you know, perhaps many different competing designs that the the user who knows the application space well can then choose from in an attempt to narrow down what kinds of designs um, might ultimately satisfy their need. Uh, So it's sort of... um, using uh, using automation tools to really accelerate and extend uh, the design capabilities of human designers, not to remove them, but just to to aid them and accelerate them. And then on the fabrication side, uh, developing materials and material deposition systems to enable people to create these these uh, robots. Um, typically from many different materials and bringing all those materials together uh, in such a way that they, uh, they create the structure that, that answers the question or solves the problem.
1: Well, That's fantastic. Yeah. As in, so, you know, in charge of engineering design at OA, I'm, I'm obviously very excited about all these different design tools, and I really want to kind of dive into some of those techniques that you use. But maybe first, uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about how you got into robotics in the first place? Orbital Assembly is leading the way in the development of artificial gravity stations so people can live, work, and thrive in space.
2: OAC's platforms are market category creators. They are backwards compatible with current standards, allowing for you to move from concept to production at the pace of business. To learn more, visit
0: orbitalassembly.com.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess every roboticist has a a Legos story. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I was an avid Lego builder as a kid. And um, I think that was perhaps my first exposure uh, to the ideas of robotics um, and really the idea of solving a problem by using, you know, creativity to imagine a solution and then implementing that solution, uh, sort of physically instantiating that solution to then uh, test out whether your your idea was right. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm pretty much doing the same thing, although trying to, to now, in a meta way, kind of developing the tools that do the design creation, mm-hmm. um, uh, but for the same kind of problem.
0: Yeah, and and what strikes me, Rob, I mean, you're really sort of approaching robotics, at least from my somewhat uninitiated perspective, in a in a in a fresh way. Where I guess in the old days, like when you were a kid or anybody you know doing it professionally at the time. Would decide, you know, I need a robot that does this, and then they think hard and they come up with some designs, but but it's sort of the human is 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 making all the decisions, and then you actually have to build it. You're now mm-hmm. taking uh, a lot of this uh, this 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 process flow and allowing that to be done automatically, so that a person really just has to come with obviously, as you said, a little bit of discretion uh, about what may or may not be desired, but. Um, uh, they don't have to do all of the the hard steps and thinking that uh, used to be the case. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I guess uh, in some recent writing I did, I was bringing up the the history of Hero of Exa- of Alexandria, and so you know, going back thousands of years, there are these accounts of automata and people who were building automata, mostly for entertainment purposes. But the <laughs> process that they used to create these structures was human intuition experience, experimentation, and manual labor. And you know, now, 2,000 plus years later, we're doing things exactly the same way in the mechanical design context. Uh, we have better tools, but we're pretty much solving problems in the same way. And um, I think it's time for a change.
0: You're here. Yeah. yeah, we're excited to hear more about that. Um, Actually, before we go on, I'm going to play a short ad from one of our our partners, and then we'll be back with the conversation with Dr. McCurdy. Ideas are powerful things. Ideas drive us to broaden our
2: minds and help us seek truth about the universe around us.
0: We are rogue space systems. Ideas above. All right. So who wants to go first? You or me, Eric? Go for it. (laughs) All right. Well, I think I would really uh, benefit from having you walk through this idea, this design process that you described. And I, I think I have a good visual that can help illustrate it. But tell me if we should bring up something else. Um, sure. It seems to be sort of a start to finish, yeah, kind of concept. Why don't you walk the uh, viewers through this? Sure. Diagram?
2: Yeah. So one of the approaches that we're taking. Um, in trying to accelerate the design of soft robotics um, is illustrated in this in this chart and i guess i'll set the context by saying that soft robotics is a pretty new field um i I, it's always hard and perilous to kind of try to set the exact start of of a a new Mm -hmm. field but roughly speaking sort of like 2010 um folks started thinking about and then manually designing structures that were robotic structures but were continuum and compliant structures so typically you know historically robotic structures had been kinematic linkages so rigid structures that you would actuate and they'd do something and um, these new soft robotic structures are inflatable and um, or you know fluid powered i'll say Uh, often that means pneumatically actuated Um, and so the design process for those was like all previous robot design processes dominated by experience and serendipity and creativity, um, you know which is great. i mean we're we're wonderful in all those aspects. Um, but one of the hallmarks of soft robotics is that we use the material distributions in these continuum structures. And here on this on this page, we're kind of illustrating you know some examples of these continuum structures. Um we use the material distributions to then, dictate what the function of the structure is. You can imagine that each of the things I'm Mm -hmm. showing you here, um, which are basically just different visualizations of the same structure, are inflated. So they have one actuation source. It's just a uniform source of internal pressure. And then the Mm -hmm. structure is supposed to do something. And in this case, the do something is to bend like a finger would bend, so that you could ultimately use it in a hand or a gripper or something like that. And so the way that it bends and how forceful it is when it bends is totally dictated by the material and the material distribution since there aren't multiple actuated degrees of freedom Mm -hmm. so in these soft structures you can kind of characterize them as having one input degree of freedom and an infinite number of output degrees of freedom and so the thing that does the mapping from that input to output is the material distribution of the structure all right so what that means is that as a human designer, you've got to have deep intuition for what the material distribution means for how the structure moves. And that's a, ha- a tall order. Certainly, you can use finite element tools to analyze a particular candidate structure once you've come up with it and then simulate how it moves. Um, that's not trivial because these materials uh, are deforming a lot. And so you have geometric nonlinearities. And you have material model nonlinearities, and you have contact. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, just just FEA simulate it is actually not usually tractable for these kinds mm-hmm. of structures. All right. So, our answer to all of that complexity is to try to integrate those steps together with several distinct um, innovations. So, on the left hand side of that image, what we are, I was showing is. Um, a bunch of sections through a scalar field. So we're using a a concept called implicit geometry functions. And an implicit geometry function is nothing more than a function that takes in some spatial coordinates, in this case, X, Y, Z, and then outputs a single scalar value. So at every point in space, in that three-dimensional space, you have a scalar value. Then if you simply draw surfaces, or you know, a continuous surface that goes through all similar values or all identical values. So for mm-hmm. example, if I draw a surface through all the zeros in that scalar field that I just created, I get the surface that you see uh, second from the left. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I get this mm-hmm. finger-like structure. Now, um, that's a convoluted way relative to perhaps doing interactive CAD, at least for folks who have never used this approach before because interactive CAD is is very natural. You kind of start from a simple uh, starting point and then you you complexify and eventually you you draw all the structures that you want. The thing about interactive CAD, though, is that it inextricably involves a human in the process, either literally drawing the things out or in the scriptable versions of it to create the sequence of actions in the script that then gives rise to the structure that you want. Um, And it can be relatively brittle. So if you've ever used a parameterized... Uh, design, you know, you might have say a parameter for the number of folds in the finger and mm-hmm. the fillet size, etc. Um, you've probably experienced changing one of those parameters just a little bit too much, and then that the thing doesn't co- you know doesn't uh, compile, right?
0: <laughs> <And it> just,
2: <laughs> right, exactly. And then you have to revert, you know, one, two, three or more steps depending on where the clash mm-hmm. is that causes it not to compile. So that you know, it's okay for us. Like we can figure it out. You sometimes it's annoying. Um, but if you're trying to automate the design, which we are, that kind of error is just toxic. So instead of using the, that kind of interactive CAD-driven uh, mm-hmm. boundary service representation style, we are now adopting, for the most part, these field-driven design approaches that you saw there on the, on the left-hand side. Yeah. Um, okay. So then in the middle, we're just showing that we can simulate these things. So once we've got this... Uh, this level set this you know set of all values that are equal to zero uh, Which defines a surface it's pretty easy for us to then uh, Translate that surface into a representation that can be um, CAD simulated and in this case we're using something called a shell element for final element uh, analysis mm-hmm. and shell elements are great because they're they're naturally the right thing to use for these kinds of structures that have thin walls um, mm-hmm. and have pressure applied from the inside and um, and then on the uh, second from the right, I'm just showing a, a cut through the um, the representation that's been converted into a 3D printable format, and then all the way on the right is the actual 3D printed multi-material object. With
0: oh, that's a photo.
2: Yeah. That's a, that's a photo. Yeah. It's the only photo. The other four are all renders, but the one on the right is a photo. Yeah. Credit to my students. I always harass them about taking high quality photos. And so now it's, I think we're at the, the point where they're, they're good enough that maybe they're mistaken for renders.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think this is true. in many. We, cases.
2: we have a no cell phone uh, photos
1: rule in my lab. <laughs> mm-hmm. Only good ones. That's fantastic. So it wow. seems like this, you know, Walking through it, I feel like this is a complex process. You know, there's a lot of things that you're you're telling us, but that might just be because there's a lot of kind of new words and concepts. I mean, at the core, what you're doing here is instead of having a human use their intuition and understanding to design by hand uh, a a part, you're essentially um, you're essentially then ha- kind of starting with this resulting geometry and having the computer. Or the resulting capability, maybe, and having the computer decide what that geometry is going to be—is—is is that right? That's right. So um, that image
2: that I showed is kind of the the you know I don't know the, the icons of the of the skeleton of this approach. But the mm-hmm. the key step um, that I think allows the automation of these structures is to create the function, this implicit geometry function, um, to create that function automatically. And so, um, it may not be immediately obvious, but I'll I'll just um, assert that it's true that there is a, a direct um, sort of bidirectional relationship between a function and a graph representation of that function. So if you have you know a plus b, you could write mm-hmm. that out uh, as on a line as a, a you know as a function, or you can represent it as a graph as some node a and some node B, and then above it, a node plus with a direction um, Mm -hmm. indicating the flow of information from those two things. And um, so we actually represent these functions as graphs. And the nice thing about that is that there are many tools that we don't have to write that allow you to to manipulate, simplify, translate graphs. Uh, These would all be directed acyclic graphs. because of the structure of the function itself. Mm-hmm. And so what we wind up doing is searching over the space of these graphs to synthesize functions, which then create the surfaces and therefore the fingers, the robots that we want. Mm. And then we simulate them to assess their performance. We'll typically use a couple of different metrics. One thing you might care about is how, how compliant a finger is. So you know, for a given pressure, how much does it bend? Um, and then another thing you might care about is how forceful is it so if, you know when you for a right. given pressure how much how much force can you put at the, at the end of the tip um, we wind up creating these uh, fitness metrics that mm-hmm. are in many senses normalized for things like finger length so that we don't artificially incentivize really short squat fingers because <laughs> for the yeah. same pressure you know right yeah. Um, yeah. so we think a little bit about the kinds of functions we want to optimize for but then we, create this multi-objective optimization setting using the ability to represent these geometries with these implicit functions Mm -hmm. and the fact that we can create the functions with these graphs. We then are going through the uh, imagine having an algorithm that just goes through the process of inserting different nodes and connections in the graph and exploring the strengths of the connections, looking at the uh, results of the simulated structures and then uh, eventually converging on structures that, you know, that optimize in this Pareto optimal sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we often oh, and go
0: if ahead. I can jump in. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say so, what, what seems to me really impressive about this, again, this automating process is you're taking a lot of the decision making that a human designer would normally have to do and you're figuring out how you can encode it in an automated way in a computer system so that it knows that. It needs to have obviously the the desired characteristics, but it also has to be manufacturable. It has to have certain minimum or maximum dimensions. It I, I'm not sure what other sort of high level things it would need, but um, and then you have a lot of different possibilities that can right because it's almost an infinite phase space, but you can much more quickly search over all those to find an optimum than having. A design team sort of manually build each one and try them out. And right, I mean, exactly. Is that am I capturing the essence of it?
2: Yeah, exactly. It, I mean, it, um, right. The description of this configuration space, you know, it's vast, right? There are so mm-hmm. many different ways just to, in the space of these fingers. There's so many different ways to design a finger. Um, yeah, on the left hand side of this slide, we're showing, in fact, many different inflatable structures which all have the same graph topology. All I'm changing mm-hmm. here are just the strengths of the connections between the different nodes in the graph. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then you can explore different graph topologies as well. So uh, mm-hmm. this particular representation is a really expressive one, at least for this, um, you know, for this subdomain of inflatable
0: structures. a large variety of, of right. shapes. That's yeah. right.
2: Mm-hmm. So it creates this really rich space for optimization to search over. And um, mm-hmm. the only quibble I would, ha- I would assert with what you said a moment ago is that, Um, Mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm still very much reliant on people to make decisions, but at a different level, right? They're making decisions Mm -hmm. about what they want rather than making decisions about, ah, what material goes here? Because we're slow at that. Uh, You know, we, we know what we want, but we don't know how to get there. And so we're solving these inverse design problems all the time manually. All I'm doing is just empowering people to solve these inverse design problems with computation. I
1: love it. That's really interesting. So, yeah. so have you noticed anything like weird crop up, something unexpected, or um, you know, difficulties even getting these algorithms to work and and provide results that that are functional and make sense?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, I have some older work uh, that you can see uh, on my web pages or if a YouTube search for me. Uh, if you if you search for my name and uh, softbots um, from work for my PhD, and that was. Um, An instance where we were also using these uh sort of network driven designs to search for soft simulated robots and simulated only the simulator we were using was kind of janky and so there was no no way to ever fabricate these things but Hmm. um they uh initially came up with a bunch of designs with these rules the rules were make a soft simulated robot that can run as fast as possible and have as little muscle as possible the idea being that when you're, ever you're doing multi-objective optimization, you'd like to choose objectives that are both desirable but are somewhat in tension with each other. If they're not in tension with each other, then you might as well just choose one of the objectives and not both. So in this case, you know, having fewer muscles or smaller muscles, in general, you'd think would make you slower, but it also means that you're more efficient. You know, perhaps yeah. you at least have less energy consumption.
1: So you're trying um, to basically c- combine those two into this decision of, fitness or utility where it's not run the fastest or have the smallest muscle, but it is run the fastest for the least amount of muscle you can. It's almost exactly. a ratio there.
2: Okay. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so many folks, when they're doing optimization, they'll think about um, combining different metrics together. Um, and that's a natural way of thinking about how to bring together multiple objectives. Right. But um, it's, it's sometimes a bad idea to literally combine those metrics together, you know, in some sort of additive or, mm-hmm. you know, weighted way, because then that implies that, you know, how much you care about, say, running fast or being, you know, lean. And mm-hmm. in many cases, you don't. Oh, right. uh, you're you're new to some space of materials and fabrication, and you don't know what's possible. And like as a kid, when I was playing around with my Legos, I learned what was possible by just fiddling with them, right? Yeah. And, and so... Um, what this these tools can do if, if you are um, optimizing in a Pareto optimality sense, you create these Pareto fronts of performance. And so what you'd like to do, I think, is to show the human designers, the human engineers and supervisors, all of the solutions that lie on the Pareto front of mm-hmm. best solutions that are all equally good, given the set of constraints mm-hmm. and objectives that you have. Yeah. And don't bother them with the designs that aren't on the Pareto front because they're all less good. Sure. So, like the,
1: the Pareto front then for our listeners being that, that part of the curve, if you're say you have a graph of, you know, on one axis, the the speed it can run and the other axis, it's the, the amount of muscle. Right. Right. And that if there's, if there are two solutions that can both run just as fast, but one is heavier, that's not on the Pareto front. But if there's a solution that is a little bit heavier, but also a little bit faster, that could also be on the Pareto front, right? So you're taking out the solutions that are, you know, strictly worse on one of those mechanic metrics, right? But you're left with not just a single option, but an entire spectrum of options that are at least the best in one of those compared to the others.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's the Mm -hmm. principled way of displaying Mm trade-offs. And as engineers, we're always making trade-offs, Right.
0: Yeah. I was just struck by an analogy, which is, you know, I don't know that much about designing clothes, but if I wanted to shop for, say, a, a suit, I might go to the tailor, you know, depending on how much money I have, of course, <laughs> some people just get it off the rack. But, uh, you know, if I had the ability to do this, I might go to a tailor and say, mock me up four or five different options because I don't I, I know I want to look good and I want to mm-hmm. not spend more than this money and I'd like it in these colors or this style or something but the point is that you kind of let the creativity uh, explore that space and then it's still up to me to say I just don't like this very much uh, it doesn't work for me but this one this this is looking really good so obviously it's a much less qualitative I'm guessing in your case but is that a helpful analogy I would
2: agree. I mean, um, I think what you just did there and what we all do is we, Mm -hmm. by looking at what's possible in some new design space, we realize that there are additional constraints and objectives that we didn't know about before. And we are doing that all implicitly as we're going through our design iteration loops, when the human is inextricably a part of synthesizing the designs. And so all we're doing with this, this, this approach is to take the human out of the part of the loop where they're synthesizing and simulating designs to make things faster, but they're still part of the process in which we refine what we want. We refine Mm. the set of constraints and objectives. And, you know, with your suit, you realize that like some particular combination of the colors and the cut weren't, weren't in the objective space or in the, like they were outside of the constraint space, but you didn't know it before until you saw it.
0: Right, 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 right. Um, well, I have another question, but Eric, did you want to follow
1: up on that? No, no go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Well, I think I, 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 we sort of avoided talking about the the question of why soft robots. I mean, you talked about how, you know, traditionally robots sort of have these hard links, and when we think of robot, I'm sure if we Googled robot, we'd see all of these sort of like metal, you know, rigid almost designs. What? why are you attracted to it and why is the field more generally you know why why is the field sort of starting to move what what advantage does it give over conventional hard robots
2: yeah let me answer that in two ways. First, I'll say, I do have work in more conventional hard robots as well. So synthesizing designs and then three d printing designs. And so during my mm-hmm. my postdoc work at MIT, um, we had a paper uh, that was called uh, Printed Hydraulics, and there's a YouTube video associated with that that's got a whole bunch of of uh, watches. And it basically shows the process of a three d printer printing out using this liquid solid material deposition technique. Uh, printing out a robot that can uh, actuate and move by moving fluid through its body, and um, those are all rigid structures. Um, mm-hmm. They do they do deform a little bit, uh, but they're rigid structures. Um, but but to really answer your question, um, I think what's particularly interesting about soft robotics and what makes it a nice target for the kinds of techniques that we're interested in in my lab is that. Um, is that idea of continuum materials and there's this concept in the community called morphological computation and really it's kind of uh, it should be like using air quotes or something every time anybody says morphological computation I think um, because what they really mean is that you're you're exploiting the fact that the material embeds a certain behavior in it and then you're using that behavior in the application space that you care about Okay, you so mean in a simple
0: or, or something like that, or can you give a
2: yeah? Example? Um, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I mean, could you repeat what oh. you said?
0: Stretch. I said a property like stretchiness. Or yeah. guess, it tendency to bend in one direction versus another, that kind of thing?
2: Sure, exactly. I mean, so if I, you know, my hands are reasonably good at manipulating objects. You know, here I've got uh, a pointer in my hand, right? And I can twiddle this thing around without really even thinking about it very much. In part, that's because, you know, all the computation that's here and, you know, elsewhere distributed in my body is pretty good at doing that. But also, mm-hmm. it's because I've got a multi-material compliant uh, robot, you know, or, uh, you know, anthropomorphic uh, manipulator here, right? Where I've got like rigid structures surrounded by less rigid structures. And so right. there's an inherent sort of mechanical compliance in my fingers and my hand that aids me as I manipulate this thing. Um, and I think that the the this is what inspires a lot of soft roboticists in the design of these continuum compliant structures for fingers and for manipulation. The trick, though, is that you need to come up with a a material distribution. And so in that image we were showing previously, those fingers had like the red and the white components, and the red part was the stiff part and the white was the soft part. Um, We don't know a priori what distribution of stiff and soft and wall thickness, et cetera, Mm will yield the kinds of behaviors that Uh, we want. And so- So
0: part of this this analysis that you're showing actually solves that, I'm guessing. It is an optimization of That's correct.
2: Yep, yep, exactly. So, I mean, this image itself is just showing the the collection of tools that we've created. But when we use these tools as part of this multi-objective Pareto-driven optimization, we are using the algorithm to change the design equations, these implicit functions that describe the object, so those implicit mm-hmm. functions are being changed such that the behavior of the object will do the kinds of things that we want.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. So that m- kind of morphological computation isn't, isn't necessarily like a, a computer thinking about it, like we might say, but it's, it's a way to sort of embed that, that type of behavior and that response to an input into the actual like shape and and design and material that you're using. In a
2: way. That's right. Yeah. So it, um, in in our lab, all of the computation is done outside of the finger and then mm-hmm. embedded in the finger as a material distribution. And right. um, I'm not you know I'm not smart enough to know ahead of time what material distribution we need for a particular behavior. And so that's mm-hmm. why we leverage these computational tools. So to answer your original question, we we use these tools, or I should say, we use soft robotics as a target because it's a really interesting and hard problem for these kinds of tools.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we're going to take a short break here. Uh, we have plenty more to ask you and get into, but uh, I'm going to take you offline for a moment, Rob, while we... Um, tell the audience about the, uh, the t-shirt giveaway contest that we have, Mm -hmm. uh, in store. So uh, stand by for about a minute or so. Mm. All right, Eric, uh, let's choose this week's, uh, winner of the, uh, t-shirt or other merchandise. Mm -hmm. Um, why is somebody winning this, uh, this free, free merchandise? Got a
1: grab bag and, and, uh, we, we, you know, want to appreciate our listeners and, and people who are, you know, interested in what, what we do and, and enjoy the podcast. And so this is kind of a way that we can, uh, you know, keep this back and forth and uh, conversation going. So uh, for now, if you, if you like to uh, enter the contest, just go ahead and um, subscribe to our YouTube videos uh, on our YouTube channel. If you're listening to this on podcast, you're going to have to hop over to YouTube and, and hit the subscribe button there. Uh, but that will get you on our list for our our drawing during these episodes. Um, so you know, hope to hope to see you there. And why don't we uh, pick our winner? All right,
0: let's do it. Okay, I think I will roll the dice this time. Ready? It's a All special. Right. That's right.
1: <laughs> Ding!
0: I like it. It's going okay. somewhere. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> yeah. I think it may have almost fallen off the desk, but uh, <laughs> fortunately, it's just virtual. All right. Our winner for this week is Christian Webb. Christian Webb, congratulations. You are the winner this week. How does Christian uh, claim his or her prize?
1: Yeah, just uh, shoot us an email, ourfutureinspace at orbitalassembly.com, and give us your mailing coordinates, and we'll uh, grab something out of our little bag of, of treats, as it were, and, uh, and send it your way. So congratulations, and of the rest of you, make sure you subscribe on YouTube and uh, be part of this, uh, this section of the podcast. All right, hey Rob.
0: Hey. So, Excellent.
1: so tell us a little bit about three D printing or additive manufacturing. How how do you make use of that in this process, and and how important is it to um, to have processes like additive manufacturing to make these soft robotics? Sure. Um,
2: so, I guess historically, folks in the soft robotics community started making the first soft robotic uh, components, fingers, robots, etc using uh, a casting process so they might 3d print a mold and then they would mix up some materials and pour them into the mold and let those materials solidify take them out of the mold and they'd have the geometry that they wanted Um, they uh, soon discovered that adding something called a strain limiting layer which is a small strip of inextensible material at one point in the soft robot finger made that finger bend a lot better and so no longer do you have a single material soft robot finger, you now have a multi-material soft robot finger. But arguably the material distribution was was pretty trivial. Um, the innovations then that followed were to include different wall thicknesses in the structures. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I would argue that that still uh, kind of limits you as a designer. And so we started to use multi-material additive manufacturing because it really frees us up in the kinds of designs that we can dream up, uh, evaluate, and then fabricate. Um, So when you use additive, you can put, uh, well, I guess in the best case, you can put any material anywhere you want in the build space, Um, of Mm -hmm. course, there are always limitations uh, with any particular material or deposition, but that is the inspiration and the major motivational factor for using added manufacturing in this context Got is it. the ability to put wildly different, different materials um, into the space that you're trying to fabricate. And then you can step back, you know, press print, step back and get a coffee and um, and out comes your structure. So in the, in the thing you were just showing a moment ago, that soft uh, finger um, there's a, Yeah, this one in particular, Um, there are two materials in this particular print. There's the kind of whitish material that is a flexible uh, uh, thermoplastic urethane material that we're 3D printing. And this particular structure actually is, is stiffer and more compliant than equivalent cast structures. And that is true because of by virtue of the design that we came up with. Um, and this design would not be fabricable using a casting approach because in casting, if anybody's ever played around with this approach in casting, you know, you pour stuff into a mold, but then the thing's got to come out of the mold. So if you have any structures that would create a loop or a kind of envelopment of your mold, then you're stuck. And, um, usually what people will do to solve that problem if they're casting is first cast part of the structure, take it out of the mold, then cast another part of the structure uh, and then glue those two pieces together. Or sometimes they'll use an over-molding approach where you might put the originally cast thing back into a different mold then pour more stuff in and, and so on and so forth. As you can imagine, the more steps you have, um, the fewer opportunities you have to go get coffee. You have to be really part of the, uh, of the process of fabricating it, right? Um, also, it becomes harder to have multiple materials. So in that finger, there was a black strip of material there That black strip of material is actually a strain-sensing material. It's a material whose resistance changes as a function of strain, and that's also 3D printed. And we can embed that anywhere we want in this 3D printed design. And it tells us things like what's the bend radius of the finger at any given point in time and how hard are we pushing uh, on the finger uh, Mm. with the object that's in contact. Um, And so,
0: yeah, I mean, uh, for us, the... For a fully functional device, you got to have the feedback, right? So that's,
2: that's right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, So anyway, so
2: for, for us additive is um, a multi-material additive is a key part of our tool set for Mm -hmm. making these structures.
1: Do you, do you need, you know, you mentioned earlier, you as the, you know, engineer, as a designer, you're not, you know, having a really heavy hand in, in how to design this. So you're, you're, setting up these tools so that the computer kind of can run through all these different iterations, all these different designs, and tell you how they perform. Does the computer need to know then what capabilities you have in terms of manufacturing and and what materials are available and where they could go?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a large and unmet need in the space. Um, We have taken some very small steps toward addressing that. Um, As have, in fairness, commercial vendors of uh, 3D printing tools, um, they are, uh, I would say the criticism that I have is that they are limited typically to just those tools. So if you're someone near a company who makes a a fused filament fabrication printer, um, you care a lot about telling the user that if they use that particular printer with a particular material, um, that a particular geometry that they've asked for, May not be feasible. There are some tools that are beginning to do that, but um, in no in no case are they uh, general uh, across materials, across printers, uh, you know, across uh, deposition modalities. There are tons of different forms of added manufacturing, for example, yeah. and uh, they all have different constraints. And then when you incorporate multiple materials, the number of combinations uh, absolutely just balloons. And yeah. um, you know, for the same printer. Um, If you have, say, 10 different materials, you can imagine all the different combinations of material A next to material B next to material C. Mm -hmm. And maybe those materials don't play nicely with each other. Um, So
0: materials uh, compatibility, you mean. Exactly.
2: uh, And yet you might still want to use them. So historically, any printer vendor who has supported multiple materials in their printer has restricted the set of materials to those that do play nicely together. But that means that you have a much smaller set of capabilities so right. um, yeah, I mean, I think moving forward, you know, Eric, your question about this was uh, is right is right on target. I think for where the industry needs to go, and, and we're developing some tools to basically do model checking um, of different materials in a design.
0: Yeah, because uh, it's one thing to be able to do all of these simulations in silicon ahead of building, you know, a model. And in the old days, you'd have to like build an entire airplane and then see if it flew, right? And and we're, we're short-circuiting a lot of that, but if you still have to make a physical model every time to test, that's a lot of wasted time, effort, money, right? So, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to bring up another image that I had flashed on earlier, just wondering how this uh, particular 3D-printed object differs from what you were showing before or maybe illustrates one of your multi-material Concepts
2: absolutely. Yeah, the timing is perfect here. Um, This is a case where I had to um, Think really carefully about these design rules. So let me explain what you see Um, On the left hand side you see kind of a a transparent block of material and then kind of a whitish spiral um, Around another sort of whitish ring. So what's going on here is that um, we're using a multi-material inkjet printing process so that inkjet head scans back and forth, deposits tiny droplets of photopolymer. And that photopolymer, when it's exposed to the bright light that's also attached to the printhead, um, that photopolymer solidifies uh, from a liquid into a solid. And you know your object is built up. Well, to that solidifying photopolymer, we're also adding another deposition channel from that inkjet system that's a non-curing liquid. And that non-curing liquid is deposited at the same time as the photopolymer and occupies volume. It just never transitions from a liquid into a solid. Mm -hmm. And so all of the kind of whitish ring area that you see there is where we printed the liquid material. And so the advantage of that is that um, you don't have a solidified volume of material inside of these long tortuous channels, these spirals, instead you have a liquid, which is really easy to purge out if you want to get rid of it. Um, The the implicit message here is that in inkjet 3D printing, you always have to have something to print on top of. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you want to have successively higher layers, you need to have the thing below it be something that occupies volume. That something can be liquid, um, in other words, a, a thing that never transitions into a solid Um, However, if you do that, the design rules change. So the size of features that are possible, the interfaces between the liquid and the solid region, Mm. uh, the amount of liquid that you can have. There are a whole bunch of different constraints that are introduced when you have this other material, which is, I would say, quasi-compatible with the photopolymer. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I think to have some of these visualizations for people who are not working with this every day, just to just to see physically what some of the uh, uh, consequences of you know mm-hmm. the, the the rules and the fact that you're working with more than one material, what can you make with that, and what do some of those look like. So, yeah. well, I think it might be an appropriate time to uh, take take this conversation a little bit into a different direction, and that is. Mm-hmm. You know, so far we've been talking strictly about your field and how cool these robotics are and the generative algorithms for it, and that's all really uh, important stuff. But we would like to take it to now take it into the space context and ask: um, Are these sorts of techniques and the types of structures that you can build especially valuable for doing interesting things in space? Just wondering if you can uh, think a little bit about that for for our audience.
2: Sure. I mean. Uh- I think the answer is yes. Um, I, the, the kinds of application scenarios I think about, you know, folks are going to be out um, in far smaller numbers, you know, fewer numbers than they would be on on the ground on Earth. We're not going to have access to the the deep and wide supply chains, you know, when they work um, that we have access to here on Earth. And so, um, you know, in a sense, people will need to be a bit more self reliant. And yet, I don't think that we can expect people to be experts in every single nuance of a 3D printer uh, that they have, or you know, in some other fabrication uh, technology. And so I think these kinds of automation techniques that, that we've been talking about could be really valuable in this new context. By the way, I just kind of dropped in an assumption there, the assumption being oh. that I think 3D printing is going to be important. Why? I mean, I think it's it's potentially going to be important because we're going to need replacement parts. We're going to mm-hmm. need, um, you know, tools to solve some unanticipated problem. We're not going to be able to think, you know, three, four years out ahead of time. Every single physical thing we'll have, it okay. makes uh, have a need for. I should say. I think it makes a lot more also, sense. Go ahead.
0: It's also going to be a long time before we have a fully stocked machine machine room, you know, machine mm-hmm. shop where yeah. a skilled technician can fabricate. You know, out of metal or plastic, mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever
1: you need. Yeah, there's actually been some some pretty detailed studies looking into that, into the spare parts problem. You know, showing that things like a, a Mars colony could have these exponentially, you know, more expensive resupply missions just to deal with the sort of regular rate of failure of any machine. And so, a lot of uh, a, a lot of recommendations are are backed by the, these studies and this data showing how important. 3D printing in particular, but being able to make, uh, you know, parts and replacement, you know, uh, options and and tools in situ when we go into space.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, but I think the other thing that you're highlighting is um, limited labor uh, and time. And so if you allow, if you have enough compute capacity, you know, key, key enabler there, it seems like. You can uh, solve the problems that need solving in space, you know, using these kinds of approaches. And you really don't even need a, uh, a, a highly specialized uh, roboticist to do it. You just basically say, computer, build me something that does this. And it gives you a few options and you're kind of off to the races, right? I
2: totally agree. Yeah, that's. I think that's the vision. That's the sensible thing. I mean, we, we can't afford, I think, to be, uh, you know, developing... Every little detail of these things ourselves. We know what problems we want to solve, but how to get to the solution? I don't know that it's the highest and best use of uh, of the time of the limited numbers of people who might be, you know, part of some space flight somewhere.
1: Right. You You mentioned earlier the the industrial supply chain. Uh, you know, in some ways, here on Earth, we have this you know big economy, this industrial supply chain that is able to get us different parts and materials and motors and machines and tools. Um, you know, w- when we kind of escape from that in a way, or when we, when we you know, move beyond the planet, we don't have access right, to this, this pre-emplaced infrastructure, uh, w- what kind of impact do you think that is going to have on you know, the way that we kind of design and use these, these types of tools?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's um, potentially profound. I mean, I, I think we'll definitely have to include the availability of these resources in the design planning tools that we're uh, envisioning for these kinds of scenarios. Um, mm-hmm. I I haven't we haven't spoken about this, but there's a a research thread in my lab that's all about uh, printing flexible hybrid electronics. And so we've been using inkjet printing, multi-material inkjet printing to print uh, flexible circuit boards that are multi-layer and um, organic electrochemical transistors, which are great for making sensors. They're not so great for making computational elements, although they can, but they're slow. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, additive is never going to meet the density of uh, a modern kind of, um, uh, you know, lithographic uh, process in terms of transistors per Mm -hmm. unit area. So... I could imagine that we would change our objectives somewhat, um, to produce, um, you know, lower density devices, maybe based on analog computation rather than digital computation to mm. solve some kind of need. I mean, I, all the examples we showed so far in our conversation were just purely mechanical, but the point I'm making is that, you know, you can use multi additive to also make, uh, electromechanical structures. Mm. And, um, I think, uh, We'll have to change how we think about solving problems. Digital yeah. computation is fantastic, right? But there are lots of ways of solving problems.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've brought up an image that is an illustration of what you're discussing, or if this is something else. But um, is is there something I can show that kind of illustrates that, Rob?
2: Yeah. This is this is um, a, a related idea. So on the right hand side of this, um, I'm showing a stack of different very small circuit boards. And um, those small circuit boards each have their own sort of atomic functionality. So one is a capacitor, another is a resistor, another is a switch. There's one that has a very small um, ALU, arithmetic logic unit on it, that can do little state machine kind of operations. And so you can build up a functional circuit by combining all these little tiles together and... um, Mm -hmm. This circuit, actually, the thing you're, sh- you're showing here on the right-hand side with these two little buttons on the top are two channels of an infrared remote control. So when the user presses one of the buttons, they energize one of the circuits that's created by stacking these things together mm. and create a pulse train from an infrared LED that's on a different one of these little modules. And so you can control uh-huh. a TV. I think these are just volume up, volume down, for example. Um, uh-huh. Now, these can be manipulated. The, the, the um, repeated locations of these little uh, gold colored contacts you can see there are actually interface locations for an assembler. So there's an assembler that can come over, it can uh, pick these things up, rotate them, put them down. And so the assembler can automatically make these structures and then it's easy to recycle them just by pulling them apart. So the idea here was it's to electric. create a, yeah, a fully circular kind of electrical circuit fabrication approach.
1: Oh, interesting. Oh, wow.
0: So I could imagine, again, on this uh, this uh, um, hypothetical Mars colony, maybe not so hypothetical in a few mm-hmm. years' time, uh, you might have a big store of these. So even if you can't print them from elements, right, you can at least have a store of these basic circuits that can be reassembled into various uh, circuits for solving whatever temporary problem you have, right, and then pull them apart and use them for something else.
2: That's right. Yeah, that was the concept.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really neat. So do you want to well, tell us, we're, we're kind of getting uh, close to the hour here, but I, I wanted to go a little bit bigger for a minute and uh, tell us about what your big vision is for robotics and, and space robotics in particular.
2: Well, um, yeah, I, I, was, I was both thrilled and kind of disappointed when I saw several years ago the intro scene to Westworld when they've got the, the robot that's, Printing all these sinuous tissues, and out of the goo emerges this robot, because um, that's—I think—that's very much the the vision, um, and you know, it's it's wonderful to see that sort of brought to life with uh, a, a really a lot of artistic flair. Um, but it's also a double-edged sword because you know, when when people see these things, they think. Um, it's closer to reality than I think it, than it really is. But, you know, the idea of, of printing these really complex electromechanical structures, uh, with a multi-material fabricator, uh, is, is really the dream. And of course you see the physical parts of it, you know, you see the fabricator, you see the materials, Mm -hmm. but upstream of that is all of the computation that's gone into creating the the set of Mm multi-material designs that will then yield the kinds of performance that you want.
0: Right. So you see a future—not to put words in your mouth—but you see a future where we will use machines to build machines that can do almost anything that we need done. Is that? I Scott? think it's.
2: I think that that's the that is an inevitable trajectory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll we'll probably get there first purely with um, with agents that are in, you know, inside uh, a computer somewhere rather than than physical instantiations. But I think the physical instantiations are um, inevitable.
0: Is there a danger to this? I mean, I have to bring up the (laughs) AI apocalypse kind of thing here. I mean, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I I think the danger is is a really interesting, complicated one. I think the danger is really the interaction of these technologies with society. So Mm. the first team that figures out how to make a general purpose AI, for example, that first team is going to have, you know, such an advantage over everyone else on the planet that you know, it would be as if uh, you know a, a modern military landed in a sort of uh, you know prehistoric region, um, mm. and so um, I think that the, the the real danger is is us and how we interact with this. The the kinds of leverage, for example, that intelligent autonomous agents give to their owners. I mean, it's a huge advantage that's that's conveyed to the owners mm. of these systems. Right. I don't think, by the way, that we're going to see the kind of you know apocalyptic sort of Skynet kind of technology that's like self-aware AI, I think it's much more likely instead that we'll see these incredibly complex and capable Mm. um, agents that can solve problems, but don't necessarily have their own agendas. It's the human agendas aided by this huge leverage that I think we need to worry about.
0: And sort of capable soldiers being directed by a human mastermind, what might be the worst case. Yeah. Situation. Mm-hmm. But I guess the difference is, you know, we worry about AI just like basically big computer brains turning on and off, you know, electric circuits and crushing cars with, you know, all of their, because their feelers are everywhere, right, in terms of their sensors and things. But but this is kind of something else. You're saying that we're now giving the ability of, in principle, and I'm sorry if I'm really out on a speculative limb here, but in principle, we're giving an electronic system the ability to make things in the real world right i mean that feels qualitatively different
2: yeah Um, i think that that could be the could be the future um here um but again i think it'll be people that we have to Mm -hmm. worry about more than the uh the electronic agent um, Mm -hmm. if we're worried about it at all
0: i see the distinction you're making right yeah it's not so much that the machines themselves will get out of control; it's that bad actors will use them for nefarious aims, and that's what we need to.
2: I think that's okay. the more likely scenario.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I Jeff, it looked like you're about to ask another question, or
0: no, I did actually didn't have one right now, so I was just curious no. if uh, we had maybe a last question for Rob.
1: Well, I I wonder, you know, in particular. I mean, you clearly understand this field very well. You know, what haven't we asked you? What haven't you had a chance to talk about that might be interesting to, you know, people, you know, listening to this podcast or looking to the future and curious what that that would look like?
2: Oh, boy. Um, I didn't have this one loaded up. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... I can talk about, you know, I'm always thinking about some of the limitations, the challenges that we face, right? And um, one of the things that I think will make the day when you know, uh, some intelligent agent, perhaps directed by a computer, makes a physical thing that we have to worry about, I think one of the, the reasons why that is still relatively far off is that we're trying to solve a bunch of problems at once. You know, Robotics is inherently an integrated field. And so we're trying to bring together all these different capabilities. And so, you know, I talk about the kinds of, of core necessities that we need to make robots, and and they include, you know, low level signals and sensing, higher level computation, uh, perception, uh, actuation, structural mm-hmm. components, energy storage. You know, these are all really complex problems in their own right, with whole teams in the existing supply chain that make solutions for this, and. You know, here we are proposing that we'll just bring all this stuff together and put it in a machine that's just going to fabricate it all, right? And so there are huge, huge problems just in the material science of formulating materials that are high performing and are um, compatible with this uh, additive manufacturing approach. Um, You know, so for example, we use multi material inkjet a lot because it's high throughput, Mm -hmm. relatively high accuracy, and inherently multi material. But the big disadvantage of it is that. The range of materials that you can run through an inkjet head is really, really narrow relative to the the universe of materials that are available yeah. in a whole bunch of other processes. So the structures that we can make using additive, generally, are um, you know are not as high performing as the structures you could make if you were using any you know available manufacturing technique per material type. So there there is a challenge in integrating these things together and. Um, you know, we're making progress collectively. We make progress in my group, but there's some big, big challenges there to be overcome still separate and apart from all the design challenges uh, that we Mm -hmm. talked about before.
0: I mean, there's no reason to exclude conventional or or just say non-additive manufacturing the process. You you say, well, it adds complexity. You have to join these things together. But if you're automating more and more of the process, I can imagine that Becoming not too hard to execute mm-hmm. without a human in the loop. And it's just part of the fabrication process, right? If you really I think need that's that right. Yeah. Terrific.
2: Yeah. Maybe you reduce the, you have more integration of individual components and then you're bringing those components together via other means, say some robotic assembly approach mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah.
1: So are, are we going to be looking at these techniques for, you know, things like von Neumann machines in the future, do you think, or is that still more of a, a theoretical uh, exercise? Well, that's definitely, um, I should say,
2: I, I'm a bit more agnostic about the, um, the topology or the style of computational substrate that we'll uh, be targeting. I don't know if we want to use, I um, try to, to try to emulate an existing von Neumann kind of architecture, or if um, a different sort of more analog computational substrate makes more sense. So, for example, we are trying to three D print neural networks, um, and um, they can run at much lower rates and still perform compelling computation. Mm. So, it may mm-hmm. be that these old analog computers, which were popular, you know, back in the day, are potentially going to be coming back. And, um, oh wow. We'll see.
1: I'm I'm collecting I'm collecting my anachronistic uh, uh, vision of the future with our steam-powered spaceships <laughs> run right. by a, by a, an analog robot. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have a great example of a very functional analog computer Absolutely. we carry around with us.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and we actually had a great, great take- conversation about that a, a, a few episodes ago with Sadash Shankar about how efficient our analog computer is, you know, even compared to our best, you know, digital computers and, you know, laptops and supercomputers, it's just such a different architecture, it can be really, really efficient. So yeah,
0: um, it's kind Out of yeah. recognition, it excels at taking <laughs> cubic roots, not so much, right?
1: Excellent. Well, I think we hit the hour here and we're we're out of time. But uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, of course, everyone who's listening, uh, you know, either live here right now or or listening to the podcast once it's released, uh, you know, thank you for joining us. I hope you found this uh, this fun and uh, enlightening to to listen to. So if you uh, you know want to be part of the conversation, uh, please reach out to us. Let us know your thoughts. uh, You any other ideas that you want to uh, hear us? Talk about in the future, people you'd like us to interview, or just comments about uh, about some of the, the conversations you've heard. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Our Future Space and Facebook at Our Future in Space. And of course, we we'll always love to hear from you via email, Our Future in Space at OrbitalAssembly.com.
0: If you like what we're doing at Orbital Assembly and would like to find some ways to support us in other ways, uh, feel free to reach out with an inquiry to info at OrbitalAssembly.com. Thanks everyone for listening, and thanks once more, Dr. McCurdy, for your time today. It's really interesting.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure. This program represents the personal opinions of the hosts and their guests. The content, opinions, and views do not necessarily represent the
1: views and opinions of Orbital Assembly nor the organizations with which any of the program participants may be affiliated. The mere appearance or promotion of this program does not constitute an endorsement by Orbital Assembly or its affiliates. Future in Space, copyright Orbital Assembly, hosts Dr. Jeff Greenblatt, and they record audio and video production by Tim Alatori. Musical theme,
2: The Last Day, by Dark Blue Studio.